You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's in 1848 in Illinois where a young Whig lawyer named Abraham Lincoln throttled the Democrats. It was in the midst of the campaign of 1848 and the Whigs were running Zachary Taylor, a hero from the Mexican War, but nonetheless a general that couldn't get a lot of love from the current Democratic president, James Polk. And Polk actually restricted his movements, didn't allow him to take the capital of Mexico, but instead had Winfield Scott take it. All of his generals were Whigs, by the way, so Polk didn't have a lot of choices there, but he knew Taylor was a Whig, and Winfield Scott seemed like a more quiet one, one that wouldn't run for president. So he had him do the capture of uh, Mexico City. Nonetheless, Scott didn't run. The Whigs ran Taylor. And so the Whigs start getting attacked, like, oh, you're running this military person. And plus, he doesn't, he hasn't said anything How can you support him? You don't even know what he's for or against. You don't know his issues. And this is what Lincoln speaks to in his excellent way. He throttles Democrats for hiding under the military coattail that they accuse Whigs of. But in Democrats' case, it was that of Mr. Jackson's. The coattail was used not only for General Jackson, but clung with the grip of death to every candidate since. You've never retired from under it. Your campaign papers have constantly been old hickories, hickory poles, hickory brooms. Here you say Polk is a little hickory. You never give it up. You stick to it like a horde of hungry ticks. You have the hermitage lion tail to the end of its life. A fellow once advertised that he had made a dissertation of how to make a new man out of an old one and still have enough of the stuff left to make a yellow dog. Just such a discovery has General Jackson's popularity been to you. You not only twice made president out of it, but you have enough of the stuff to make small men presidents since. Then he went on to attack Lewis Cass. Well, he was an aide to William Henry Harrison in the Battle of the Time in 1840. Now that's an accomplishment, Lincoln notes, except you said in 1840, Harrison being a Whig, that he was two miles away picking Huckleberry while the battle was being fought. Now, that's a curious thing, because you're now running the aid. So, was Cass helping Harrison pick those Huckleberries or not? Gentlemen, I ask this of you. And I'm sure he got a little chuckle. Here's a real interesting description of Lincoln's law practice at the time in 1850 from Sidney Blumenthal in his book, Wrestling with His Angel, A Political Life of Abraham Lincoln. The office of Lincoln and Herndon was in a red brick building across from the state capitol and courthouse in Springfield, Illinois. One long table and a short one. Lincoln filled the bookcase with his law books, personal library, and volumes that his partner Herndon collected. 
all mixed together, among them Blackstone's works, Kent's commentaries, along with Thomas Paine's collected works, the English historian Thomas Macaulay's essays, the French radical Louis Blanc's On the Working Classes, the American debater, and elements of zoology were among the books there. Pictures of the Whig giants, Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, were hung on the wall. There was no rug on the wooden floor. As a congressman, Lincoln had stockpiled bags of seeds to distribute to farmers as favors, and a young clerk sweeping up discovered that they had sprouted in the office dirt. The partners kept no ledgers and divided the fees equally, which Mary resented. Lincoln spent many days with his long legs propped up on a nearby chair, reading newspapers, journals, and books, and holding forth on some naughty law point, current event, or telling some joke. Billy, he would begin, talking to William Herndon, I heard a good story while I was up in the country. Lincoln was what they called a volume lawyer. His fees generally ranged from 5 to $50. Only about 15% of Lincoln cases were criminal. The overwhelming number civil. Nearly two-thirds involved debt collection, with Lincoln swooping in as the repo man. Lincoln represented banks, insurance companies, and manufacturers. Most of his corporate practice involved railroads, but he represented railroads and those suing railroads almost equally. When he served as an attorney on behalf of the railroads, it was often for the Illinois Central and Alton and Sangamon. In 1857, he handles a major case, saving the IC from potential bankruptcy by winning the ruling that counties could not levy taxes on the railroad. For this, this major case, it's going to make the railroad a lot of money, files a fee of $5,000. The superintendent refuses to pay it. Why, sir... This is as much as Daniel Webster himself would have charged. The executive who refused to pay Lincoln, regarding him as too lowly to receive a princely sum? Well, that was former West Point officer, now railroad executive, George B. McClellan. He was appointed to the Illinois Central, the IC, because he was a strong Democrat of the Stephen A. Douglas School, a reference to the senator then representing Illinois. He was the son of a Philadelphia doctor. McClellan's first impression of Lincoln was not a man of very strong character and was destitute of refinement, certainly in no sense a gentleman. The good people of the interior of the state, McClellan wrote, are rather primitive in their appearance and habits. He was easily wrought upon by coarse associates of whose style of conversation agreed so well with his own. I mean, of course, these guys are going to face each other in... 14 years. (laughs) They're going to have friction, though, throughout that period. In 1858, when Lincoln campaigns against Stephen Douglas, he's going to find that Stephen Douglas is getting free railroad transportation as a result of the Illinois Central. The executive that's going to provide that is, of course, George B. McClellan. Sidney Blumenthal writes... Um, about Zachary Taylor. And when I interviewed him in 2017 about his book, he had uh, lamented that there weren't enough histories written of Zachary Taylor and there should be more and someone should do it. And it's something that I've had in my mind and want to do a, a podcast on. And this, what you're hearing, I don't think is enough, but it's the kernel of something, right? His inaugurated president, 1849, 
Blumenthal writes, at the beginning of his administration, the new Whig president, who had been elected on no platform, but solely his military laurels, and had no political record or stated opinions, seemed passive and inscrutable. Nobody expected the astonishing turn of events about to happen. So the first thing that happens during his administration is that there's a, decisions have to be made of what to do with all of this new Western territory acquired by treaty from Mexico after the Mexican War. It was a, acquired during Polk's administration, but he had pledged only one term, and he was gone, and a new party had taken over. Congress is actually locked in battle because Democrats are the plurality party, and they want to put Howell Cobb in as their speaker, the namesake of Cobb County, but... The Republicans, um, well, they're not called the Whigs and Free Soilers, this new, very aggressive anti-slavery party, you know, together with a couple independents, actually are able to take the minority, um, the majority from them, but it takes some time. While this is happening, the president issues his message to Congress. We're in peace with all the nations of the world and the rest of mankind. Here's what uh, Sidney Blumenthal says. um, Southern Whigs, like Alexander Stevens, Alexander Stevens, the future vice president of the Confederacy, misjudged Taylor, trusting him implicitly because he was a Southerner, a wealthy slave owner of a large Louisiana sugar plantation. His backers saw him as an iconic statue behind whose image they could perform the usual business of politics and government with no disruptions. They had misjudged him completely. He was not, after all, a hollow man without principles, but instead, as he promised, a president with a truly national perspective. The general saw himself as above politicians in the mold of Washington who would shape policy in the whole country's interest as he saw it. He was not so much a Whig as a party of one and would declare that he represented a previously unknown political formation called Taylor Republicans. Interesting. Without public notice, he dispatches confidential agents to California to help statehood forces organize to prohibit slavery. Now, in his message to Congress, Taylor proposes that both states skip the territorial phase and be admitted as free states. Everybody's stunned. The abolitionists in New England certainly didn't expect this from a slave-owning president. The Southerners were repelled by this. Politics instantly organized for or against the president. Whigs embraced the plan. If they were from the North, in the South, they felt betrayed. John Calhoun in South Carolina starts organizing forces, organizing forces that are going to begin the secessionist movement. Of course, this is 10 years before. Seward is able to report to political organizer and boss of New York State for the Whigs, Thurlow Weed. 
the president will be put on the north side of the Masons and Dixon line, and he will not flinch from any duty. So one thing that is really incredible, and I think it's been lost to history for the most part about Zachary Taylor because of his untimely death, is that he goes around not only the Democrats and the Southerners, but also the compromisers like Henry Clay, the people that had often etched out things in the middle, forcing Clay to go to Webster and start thinking about compromises, Webster the Great. Um, Massachusetts Senator and Clay, the Kentuckian and compromiser. Stephen Douglas is involved in all of this. It's going to be his bill that effectively becomes the kind of most of the guts of the compromise of 1850. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. But Taylor doesn't want any help from compromises in Congress. He's president and he's going to act as executive and make sure that California comes in as a free state and possibly New Mexico as well. He's not going to live to see it, but it will work out for California. But an interesting um, event occurs because... Taylor receives various groups like um, Stevens, Toombs. These are Southern Whigs that are very much against what the president is proposing at the White House. And then he receives you know, Thurlow Weed and Hannibal Hamlin and others. And one thing he tells them is that he told the Southerners that if they rebelled, he would hang them and he would 
hang them quicker than he hanged any of the, the Mexicans that he fought against in battle. And he said he regarded that the worst of the bunch was Jefferson Davis, the chief conspirator in the scheme, he said. Here's the thing. Jefferson Davis is his (laughs) son-in-law. That doesn't stop him. And unfortunately, um, we don't know exactly what it was. Was it the milk that he was drinking on a very hot day um, in the capital or the uh, berries that he had with it? Um, But Taylor gets sick pretty quickly and dies. His Actually, um, and I can't speak to it. I don't have – there's no historian that has any kind of real proof behind it. But his body was actually exhumed 100 100 years later, uh, more than 100 years later, to test if there was any kind of um, arsenic or anything like that in his system because – or in his bones because uh, there was, you know, some theory that came much afterwards that, oh, he was poisoned, but – as far as anyone knows, it was just a simple accident in history, but what an accident. Um, but I think my main point of all this is that in supporting Zachary Taylor, Lincoln really was right in his campaign speech. And he got somebody that not only lived up to the principles that a Illinois Whig would have, but also somebody that would be an inspiration to him and how he used executive power in the future. Lincoln would give a eulogy for Zachary Taylor and say, And now the din of battle nears, the fort, and sweeps obliquely by. A gleam of hope flies through the half-imprisoned few. They fly to the wall. Every eye is strained. It is, it is, the stars and stripes are still aloft. Anon, the anxious brethren meet. And while hand strikes hand, the heavens are rent with a loud, long, glorious, gushing cry of victory, victory, victory. I fear the one great question of the day, reference to slavery, is not now so likely to be partially acquiesced in by the different sections of the Union as it would have been could General Taylor have been spared to us. Yet under all circumstances, trusting to our Maker and through His wisdom and benef- beneficence, beneficence, to the great body of our people, we will not despair nor despond. He served as an example to young Americans that treading the hard path of duty as he trod it will be noticed and it will lead to high places. But he is gone. The conqueror at last is conquered. The fruits of his labor, his name, his memory, and example are all that is left to us. His example verifying the great truth that he that had humbleth himself shall be exalted, teaching that to serve one's country with singleness of purpose gives assurance of that country's gratitude, secures its best honors, and makes a dying bed soft as downy pillows are. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, 
but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.